Amen. Thank you, Pastor Brenda. And good morning, church. It's good to be with you all today. Welcome those who braved the T3 to be here in person and also welcome online. It's great to be worshiping with you. Let me just grab this here. We're in our Kingdom Now series, and as Connie was talking um, to us, we're talking about love today, love in action, and what does that look like in real day life. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, the way that the kingdom is supposed to be working out in reality. And we've looked at the Pharisees and some of their view of how do they apply the Torah, right? In the Pharisees' view, uh, the law could be satisfied and goodness attained if you avoided sinning. If you followed the law, then somehow that was good enough. And Jesus actually contradicts that, right? He's saying obeying the law, conforming to the law, making sure you didn't break the law, does not actually change the heart. It's a good thing to obey the law, but are you being transformed into the type of person that actually can do the law without those guardrails around us? We went through this series of teachings last week where Jesus said, you have heard that it is said, but I say, and we're going to hit a couple of those today. I think today's passage actually has two of Jesus's least followed commands, the things that Christians least do um, because it's challenging. So let's jump in. The passage will be on the screen. It's also on your bulletin, Matthew 5, 38 to 48. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile with them, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. For you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people... What are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we um, know this teaching if we've been your followers for very long, and yet we know how difficult it is to actually live it out. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit is speaking to us today. What each one of us needs to hear from this word, God, may we have ears to hear and minds open to the words you would like to speak into our hearts, God. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, let's unpack these verses kind of one by one. We'll start with 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. See, this law was given to limit revenge. In Judges, we get the story of Samson. Samson was a crazy sort of character in the Bible. Um, You can read the full story, Judges 13 to 14. But let me show you how this escalating revenge happens, and we see it in Scripture and in the ancient world. Samson is insulted. So what does Samson do? He destroys the economy of those who were insulting him. He lights the whole fields on fire, 
right? That leads to those people committing murder. Samson then gets back at them and has a mass, mass murder. Hundreds killed. Where did it all start? With an insult. And this is how life can work, right? You insult me, I do something worse to you, and then you do something worse to me, and it escalates, and we see this in Scripture itself. So this law of retribution, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, was actually an improvement on the way things were. You can only do to the other what they have done to you. It's not just a personal revenge and vengeance. This law of retribution says, no, you can only do what has been done to you. It's the beginnings of kind of a judicial system. So if you accidentally killed somebody's livestock, then you had to make it right. You either replace that livestock, or by the time Jesus' day, most of these things were dealt with in fines. So you would pay for a fine to restore the person for what you had taken away. So this idea of retribution and reciprocity was kind of the rule of the ancient world. You do to others as they do to you, both positively and negatively. You're good to the people that are good to you. You're bad to the people that are bad to you. This is kind of how things worked back then. And it's actually not that different from how things work now, right? If you're given a gift at Christmas and you weren't planning on getting that person a gift, what do you do? You probably try to hurry up and give them a gift, right? If your kid is invited to one of his classmates' birthday parties, then you probably want to reciprocate and invite that child to your child's birthday party. This idea of reciprocity is with us today. Anybody watching this show right now? All right, I did. I watched the whole thing. It's pretty good. Um, It is very violent, though. Squid Game, it's on Netflix, the most watched Netflix show in the world. It's Korean. But we see this idea of escalating revenge in this show. You insult me, and then I physically harm you, and then I kill you back, right? You also see this idea of reciprocity. You're good to me, and I'll be good to you. We see retribution, right? We see revenge. We see all these things still in culture today and even lifted up in TV shows. But Jesus' teaching today undercuts all of that. He says, that's not how we're supposed to be living as Christians. So what does he say? But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them also the other cheek. What does resist mean here? It means don't compete in evil with the other person. Do not retaliate. Don't repay evil for evil. See, the law of reciprocity says, you harmed me, I'm going to harm you. The old righteousness says, I can resist back. Jesus' righteousness, though, says, don't resist. And then Jesus gives us four examples of what that not resisting looks like. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Okay, so this is how it works in that world. Left hand is used for toileting purposes, right? Your right hand is your slap hand, right? If you're going to slap somebody, now this slap is an insult. It's a personal affront. This verse is not talking about physical violence, physical abuse. It's not talking about self-defense or war. It's talking about a personal affront, okay? So that needs to be understood here. 
So to be slapped was an insult. If you were slapped with an open hand on your left cheek, that's an insult to you, right? It's a put down. And the person doing the slapping had to pay a fine for that, okay? Now, if you were slapped on the right cheek, the only way you can slap on the right cheek is with the back of the hand, right? If I had somebody here in front demonstrating, it would be on your right cheek, okay? Now, to slap somebody that way was a worse insult. You only did that to somebody lower than you in society, right? Maybe it's your employee, maybe it's your servant, maybe it's somebody that you look down upon. Maybe in the social structure, this person was lower than you. So you would insult them even more by doing it that way, the back of your hand. And the fee for that was actually four times worse than being slapped on your left cheek. So Jesus says to, in this instant, right, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, this big insult, turn to them the left cheek. What does that mean? The only way the person can slap you on your left cheek is how? With an open hand. Treating you as an equal. Treating you with dignity. Still an insult, but equal to equal insult. You see what Jesus is doing here? If you're insulted in this extreme way, you don't run away, you don't fight back, you give them the other cheek. You represent your dignity to them. You present them an opportunity to treat you as an equal. Their evil has been exposed. Their put-down has been exposed. See, Jesus is teaching us a way to respond to evil by exposing it and disarming it, not doing evil back to evil. It allows the oppressor to be exposed for what they have done. He gives another example, verse 40. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. So to take your shirt, this would be your undergarment that you wear, okay? Your coat was your outer garment. And if you were a poor person, your outer coat was a necessity for life because you might be sleeping in this if you were homeless, in Old Testament law, if somebody had pledged their coat for the debt, you were not allowed to keep that coat overnight. You had to return it to them because it would be too severe to take it from them because they would be outside exposed in the harsh conditions. So Jesus says, if they take your shirt, your undergarment, offer them also your coat, your outer garment. Now, it would be an incredibly big taboo to be naked. So you've given them now both your items of clothing, you are naked. It's very shameful to be naked, but it's worse if you're forcing somebody to be naked. You're drawing attention to the way that they're treating you. Again, you're not running, you're not fighting, but you're exposing to them what they're trying to do to you. Now, there would be, in all of these situations, incredible communal pressure for the person to do the right thing, right? This is in a community where you know what's happening around you. So you could imagine the villagers going, what is this person going to do in that moment? And the communal pressure, I think, would have encouraged them, forced them to do the right thing. A third example, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. What does this mean? So in that time, so 
Israel was under Roman occupation. Roman soldiers could conscript you. They could force you to carry their armor for a mile and no more than that. This was incredibly humiliating for Jews. They hated this practice, as you could imagine. The people that have defeated you are now forcing you to carry their things. We see a little bit of this story when Jesus is going to the cross, and they conscript Simon, right, to carry Jesus' cross for them. So what does Jesus say? They force you to carry it a mile, offer to carry it a second mile. The scales are balanced in that equation. You're no longer doing it because you have to. You're doing it because you want to. You want to, again, say, I am not somebody you can put down just because you have conquered us. I will not allow you to oppress me. It's a very creative way to respond to evil. What happens to this soldier in this honor and shame-based culture when all of a sudden this person he's forced to carry it a mile says, I'll do it too. The shame bounces back on the soldier, right? It was a way of showing the Romans that they could not take away the person's dignity. How does this happen today? What if you're driving and somebody cuts you off, right? How do you respond? Last week, we were driving home, and I saw these two taxis almost get in an accident, and they happened to be going the same way we were. They come around the bend, and the one taxi who's been really aggressive speeds around the other one and actually blocks two lanes of traffic to stop the taxi that he's been pursuing. Now, we don't know how it all started, right? Maybe the original taxi um, cut him off. And we're going by, and I'm kind of wanting to stop, but there's nowhere to stop. I want to see how this is going to play out. The guy gets out of his taxi and runs for the guy he's just blocked his vehicle for. Escalating the revenge. I don't know how it started, but it was not going to end well, right? How do we respond when somebody cuts us off? How do we respond when somebody bumps us in the MTR, cuts in front of us at the grocery store? How do we respond to insults from others? What would it look like to be creative in our response? The person who bumps into you, right? For me, I know the easiest response is to sort of, you know, respond gutturally or to make sure they see, you know, me looking at them in a way, especially if it's in line, right? I might huff. I might show my displeasure with them. But what if I instead said, it looks like you're in a hurry, Anything else I can do for you? Now, you'd have to do it in a way that wasn't sarcastic, in a way that was genuine. What would that do? Well, they'd probably be confused. They wouldn't know how how to respond, right? But they would recognize something in that moment. I think of something that happens in these circumstances when we can actually respond how Christ might respond. Verse 42 here, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This would be a beggar type situation, a person in extreme need says, can you meet that person in their place of need and respect their dignity by helping them out? See, Jesus is giving us examples on how we can be free from protecting our honor, right? We don't have to be the ones to defend our honor. 
We can invite others to defend our honor in these scenarios. These are scenarios taking place in the midst of community, right? There would be social pressure for the person to do the right thing. What would it look like in your workplace to respond to slights in this way, to maybe give credit to somebody else instead of taking credit? In your marriage, instead of when you're insulted, to repay that with an insult. In family, when somebody is having a rough day, how can you show kindness to them instead of responding with the same maybe rudeness that you have received? See, Jesus is teaching us to love our neighbor and what that looks like. He goes on to the second block of teaching here. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, love your neighbor is in Leviticus 19. There's no sort of verse that says hate your enemy, but it was something that was debated. If you're to love your neighbor, then maybe you don't have to love your enemy. Maybe you can actually hate your enemy. So even though we don't have this this law of hating your enemy, it was something that was talked about. And I'm sure Jesus is responding to that conversation that they were living out and hating their enemies. And it's easy to understand why that would be there. So he goes on, he says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love here, this agape love is in the present imperative. It's a consistent, ongoing action. It's not a one-off. It's, it's to be in motion continually for not just an enemy, but enemies assuming there might be multiple people in your life that are challenging for you to deal with. This is the most radical of Jesus' teaching. This Sermon on the Mount, especially these verses today, are not easy to do. They're not easy for me. They're not easy maybe for most of us. Now, love can be so many different things, right, in English. You know, I love barbecue. I love Starbucks, right? I love my wife, right? We use this word for so many levels, but this here is an agape love. This is an other person focused. It's to will their good, to want what's best for them. It's not a feeling as much as it is an action. Acting in somebody else's best interest. See, in the Squid Game, we saw all those, you know, there's all this retribution and revenge, but there's also sacrifice where somebody does not repay evil for evil. They actually give of themselves, give of their life so somebody else might live. And it's beautiful. It changes the person who receives that gift. You know, we can have this idea that, yeah, yeah, I can love other people in a generic sense, but can we love the one right in front of us? I came across this wonderful quote from Dostoevsky in Brothers Karamazov, and um, he wrestles with this. The more I love humanity in general, the less I love man in particular. And he goes on down the, the quote there. Yet I'm incapable of living in the same room with anyone for two days together, as I know by experience 
But it has always happened that the more I detest men individually, the more ardent becomes my love for humanity. He's talking about this challenge of if this idea of love is nice, this idea of loving those people is nice, but can we love actually the one person that God has put in our lives right in front of us? That maybe isn't always good to us in the way we want them to be good. That, my friends, is hard might be the person in your home. It might be a difficult parent. It might be an inconsiderate spouse, an absent-minded child, a messy roommate. Jesus is calling us to love those in your community, in your workplace, in your home, in your church, and to pray for them. These are not two different commands, to love and to pray. There are two ways to love See, Jesus understands that we can't genuinely pray for somebody and continue to hate them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew this reality when he says, I can no longer condemn or hate other Christians for whom I pray. No matter how much trouble they cause me, in intercessory prayer, the face that may have been strange and intolerable to me is transformed into the face of one for whom Christ died, the face of a pardoned sinner. And I have experienced this with people that have been difficult in my life to begin to pray for them begins to change me, to will their good, to pray for God's blessing, forces me to confront it, begins to soften my heart, begins to see them as somebody worth treating with dignity and respect begins to heal maybe a wound that has been there maybe from them. And it softens me. And it usually takes time. The deeper the wound, the longer the time for healing. But it's a process and it's a journey. And it's a proactive way that God invites us into loving our enemy. It reflects the heart of God. Now God gives... Jesus in this passage gives us a second reason for loving one's enemies. And that's because God loves them. God demonstrates that love through them, through his common grace that he gives to all humanity, his provisions in nature. He says, if you don't love them, you're just like the world, just like the tax collectors, just like everybody else, only loving those who love you. In verse 45, that you may be children of your father in heaven, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. His son shines on them all. Jesus went to the cross for them all. He offers us all that grace, whether we deserved it or not. We all get to enjoy it. To be children of your father in heaven means you are like the father. It means you are loving your enemies. What is God like? He's like a person who loves your enemies. Self-sacrificing for the good of your enemies. Jesus is saying you are most like God when you are able to love your enemy. And that way you are reflecting the heart of God. If you want to be like a child of God, be indiscriminate in your love for others, just like God is. 
This is why Jesus' act on the cross is the definitive nature and picture of God. In the midst of Jesus being insulted, persecuted, beaten, he doesn't strike back. He lives out this very teaching in these verses. He doesn't repay evil for evil. He loves them. He forgives them. He gives his life for them. And with that act, the universe was changed. Death was defeated. Satan was struck down. We don't have to live with the law of retribution and revenge. Because Jesus has changed the world. Jesus absorbed the worst that the world could throw at him, and he responds in a creative way, in a life-changing way. He opposed evil, forgave, and gave his life. Let us pray. God, I thank you that you invite us on that same journey that you not only taught, you demonstrated, God. You were able to love the one right in front of you, the many ones right in front of you who were insulting you, putting you down, harming you, God. And you call us to love the one right in front of us, the one who maybe doesn't seem like they deserve it, the one who is difficult to love, God. You invite us onto that journey to love, to love. So God, fill us with your spirit, transform our hearts so we can walk in the ways that you call us, Jesus, in your name, amen.